Hi, this is Bob Murphy, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and with me today is Norman Horn, and we are going to talk a little bit about Christmas. Right now, this is this episode is going to go out a week before Christmas 2017, and we hope that in Christmas 2018, 2019, that what we have to talk about will actually be uh, relevant, and we hope that the topic will be of help to you in the coming week. We hope you listen to it before Christmas so that you can be thinking about some of the con- contextual items that we that we will bring up during this episode. So, you know, one of the reasons that we wanted to do this is we've become, we, we feel that we've be- many people, many Christians have become accustomed to hearing the Christmas stories over and over. We see them done in pageants and in plays. We see our kids get up and recite verses in church, or we just kind of read the stories and gloss over, and we don't pay attention to some of the details. And, and that's fine. Sometimes we just don't have time to pay attention to some of the details, and in particular, the contextual details. So, there's a lot of things that we tend to miss when we don't have the time to pay attention to certain things. Or maybe we don't have the time to research some of the, the deeper elements of what's going on uh, in the background there. So, there's a lot of things that we could talk about with the Christmas stories, and I say stories, and you'll see why here in a minute, with the Christmas stories that we could address, but we're going to touch on just a few a few things. So, if, if you think of uh, uh, theology as a big painting, there's a lot of brushstrokes that go on uh, when we paint a theological picture, and we can't touch all of them. So, if uh, you're listening and you have a few favorite themes of the Christmas story background because you've, you know, you've gone to seminary and you studied this, I'm sorry if we don't touch on all of your favorite ones, but we hope that what we will say is enlightening and will help uh, bring some more depth to the Christmas story for you. When I was growing up, I grew up in church uh, all my life. My parents, uh, we were there every weekend, and we were there whenever the church doors were open kind of family. And when I was learning about the gospel, uh, after, even after accepting Christ as my Savior at a very young age, I often wondered about the stories in the gospel, not just the ones, not just the ones in the early parts where we see Herod getting being threatened by this the birth of this baby. But I'm talking things like in the Book of Acts, like what was what was Rome so threatened about? I mean, these people were just. This is the way I thought. Now, I'm not saying that what I was taught was exactly this, but this is the way I took it. These people were going around telling people how they could go to heaven when they die and have eternal life. And somehow, Rome was threatened by that, and they weren't allowed to tell, tell anybody. Now, I grew up in the United States, and we have freedom of speech, freedom of religion. We can tell people uh, that if they don't accept Jesus as their Savior, they're not going to go to heaven when they die, and nobody seems threatened by it uh, from a, on, a, on a political level. There's no state saying, well, that, that's not right. You shouldn't say that. So, you know, I'm not used to the framework in which the early apostles were spreading the gospel. And I also, of course, wasn't, you know, we, I wasn't there. And so, that's just not my world. And so, I was often very curious, why on earth was this theology that was promoted by the disciples in the book of Acts, and then as we see here in the, in the birth stories of Christ, what was, the, what was the threat? I mean, this is, this is just, you know, people having this private religious experience. Well, you know, 
The disciples held no political position. Uh, they didn't have a commercial position per se, and they didn't even have the dominant religious position, except maybe within their Jewish within their Jewish circles. So, what was it exactly that was the the big threat? As I went to Bible college and even later to seminary, one of the things that I learned was that the gospel, as announced by Jesus, as announced and proclaimed by the disciples, had a lot less to do about the afterlife than I was than I had assumed, and that there was something more, let me say, earthly about the concept of salvation. There was something more about this world uh, that 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 was important about salvation. You know, the Jews weren't simply waiting for someone to come around and be like, okay, well, how can we make sure someone can tell us, you know, how, how to go to heaven when we died? Oh, wait, there, now there's Jesus, and, and, that, and there, that's it. Um, you know, Mary's prayer in Luke was not, was not about afterlife salvation. It was about her people. It was about what was going on in her world, in their world, the Jewish world. And so, when I began to learn this, it helped me rethink a little bit about what was the purpose of the gospel. And one of the ways that I sort of come back to a lot is the Lord's Prayer, you know, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And understanding that God's will to be done on earth is a big part of what it is to proclaim the gospel, live the gospel, and what it means to follow Jesus. What we're going to talk about now is how the birth stories contribute to the gospel of the kingdom of God. So, the, the first thing that I want to point out is, if we just take this, you know, pull the camera back uh, in a way, you could say that, you know, you look throughout history and you wonder, why did God choose to come as a baby 2,000 years ago from our reference point? Why then? Why not even earlier? I mean, why go through all that hassle of uh, giving Moses the Torah? Why, go, why not just come way earlier? Why not come later? Now, those are obviously speculative questions. However, uh, one of the things that I do believe is that God's timing was deliberate, and God chose to come to earth as human at a certain time and place in history. And what we want to talk about is why that time and place in history is an important aspect to consider when we think about the Christmas stories. Doug, I think that you're hitting upon something that is really important to how we perceive and interpret and incorporate the Christmas story into our life uh, as a whole. Uh, it, when we get into that context a little more, we learn that you know God's God is a God of timing. Uh, he, as you kind of mentioned, he has a he has a way of arranging the the. The events that are going to transpire, uh, so that you know he he's going to display his glory and his ways through it, and demonstrate something about himself through. I mean, really, he'll do that through any context uh, that that he interacts with them, as he's in all of those contexts, of course. But he chose this particular one, and in, and I think in particular. Uh, there are some significant things about history and about the surrounding that surrounding context that uh, give us some different perspectives that, than perhaps we normally would observe. So hopefully, in some of, in some of what we'll uh, discuss here in a moment, we'll get into that. Well, one of the things that I think is important is you know if, if you believe in inspiration, you have to know that the Holy Spirit guided the authors, and we're going to talk specifically more about Matthew and Luke here. Although I'm going to mention John in a moment that as, as thoughtful writers inspired by the, by the Holy Spirit, 
they considered how the birth stories would function in their world. And if you think about it, these stories were written down long after the ascension of Christ. They weren't watching this happen and writing it down as they as they were going. I mean, it's possible that there were things written down as they were happening. You know, maybe Mary wrote her prayer down later or something like that. Well, and, they, and Luke said, you know, of course, that he had eyewitnesses that he interviewed and things right. like that. And that's great. Yeah. Yeah. But it's it's funny. I never really thought until probably a couple of years ago that these stories would function in a certain way as so as such to be subversive. They weren't merely about recounting events, although that was important. And when you look at the genealogies, there were some very subversive things going on there. They weren't just boring lists, but they were doing something theologically because these writers were cognizant of the political circumstances uh, in which they were they in which they found themselves in. Now, if you've been a listener to this podcast before, or if you've read anything on LCI, you know that we're talking about the Roman Empire. And we as an organization have talked a lot about being anti-empire. So I'll just go ahead and spell that out a little bit. You know, there's Roman imperial domination going on. And, you know, when these writers were writing these stories, they were able to encapsulate what was going on in their world because the Jewish world was dominated by, by Rome. Um, so one, one of the things uh, before we uh, get into more specifics is if we think of them as Christmas stories, and I realize that it was it, it only happened once. <laughs> this isn't two different stories, so I don't I don't mean it that way, of course. But two different uh, retellings of the story, and if we can just for a moment, you know, the whole suspend disbelief while you're watching a you know sci-fi flick or something like that. Uh, do do this a little bit when you're reading Matthew. Forget what Luke said and try to only focus on what Matthew said. That's really difficult if you've gone to a lot of Christmas plays. And likewise with Luke, do the same. Try to ignore what you know from reading the Gospel of Matthew. And that, that is really tough to do. Sometimes it might mean re, uh, you know, reading it in a, different, in a different translation that you're not familiar with or just simply reading it over and over in one translation. It is something kind of tough to do. But one of the reasons that we want to deintegrate the stories for the purposes of talking about empire is that we miss the certain narrative cues that both of the writers take into account. Now, there's plenty of resources that can give some more detail on what we're referring to here, and we'll put those in the show notes page. But just suffice it to say that going with one uh, telling of the story can do us a disservice because Matthew was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Luke was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and they each wrote their accounts, and they were not immediately, both accounts were not immediately known to the church at large for, for many decades, possibly centuries. So, uh, those stories were told for a specific reason. So, that's all I'll say about that. And also, if you have any skepticism at all about this notion that they're, the writers are doing more than just recounting events, but wanting to do something theologically, keep in mind that we also do this in a, in a, for this specific story in a number of other ways, too. Uh, for instance, we, we understand that part of the function of these stories is to demonstrate how Jesus' birth fulfills prophecy, and also that Jesus' birth is a, is a new genesis, if you will. And we build those the, theological points, those brushstrokes, if you will, like we were talking about earlier, in, uh, in various uh, commentaries and in all sorts of ways. And you'll hear this in probably at least once in a sermon that you'll hear upcoming, you know, in this Christmas season. Um, but this these types of brushstrokes happen in multiple ways. And so we're going to take a look in particular, like we said, at this kind of uh, the, the geopolitical notion of what's going on here. 
Yeah, and you know, I've used the word subversive a little bit here, and I think the gospel narratives uh, that tell these two stories, Matthew and Luke, were writing, they weren't writing parables in the sense that they things didn't happen, but what I mean is they are functioning very much like parables in that Jesus taught in parables, and so they were sort of mimicking Jesus, because remember, Jesus came before the writing of these documents. And so, the the idea of a parable being subversive or a story being subversive or a narrative being subversive is that they invite the the reader or the hearer in this world into a different way of viewing the world. And think about how important that really is with respect to imagine you're just hearing a, in a you know a series of events that happened and somebody's relaying to you just what happened. Uh, you know what happened yesterday when they went to the store or something like that. That doesn't really communicate a bunch of the whys or what's going on behind the scenes, what's God's plan behind it is what we're really trying to get at here. And that's what that's what the gospel writers are trying to do. They're trying to invite you into viewing the world, not just from a, well, here's point A and we move to point B and we move to point C, but this is how God set everything up and then here's what he's trying to get across to you in this recount of the events. Yeah, that, that's good. So, you know, we see that Jesus told subversive stories about God, and so his followers are just kind of following in his footsteps. So, you know, for instance, one of the ways that Matthew was subversive was with the title King of the Jews. You know, when we think of King of the Jews now, we just think, oh, well, that's just a term for Jesus. And if you didn't have some of the context of the first century in mind, you read the scripture and you think, oh, King of the Jews, that's something about, you know, Jewish expectation and so forth. And yet what we what we don't realize is that that's Herod the Great's title. And so, you know, when we read Matthew, one of the things that happens is Matthew implies that Herod is the new Pharaoh in a story. So, he's hearkening back to the story of Moses, because Moses needed to be rescued from what? Mass genocide of a ruler who whose power was threatened. And so, in the Matthew story, we have Herod being jealous and threatened by this baby, uh, which, is, which is ironic, of course. Uh, and so, this title that Herod is takes for himself, King of the Jews, is given to this baby, and here's another twist of irony that Matthew gives us, is that the escape from this tyranny was actually to Egypt. And so, with Matthew, not only, what Matthew does is he not only subverts the title King of the Jews by saying, well, no, this applies to Jesus. And again, you have to realize that, the, again, going back to these were written long after the, the actual uh, events took place, Matthew also tells us uh, is the place where we are told that Pilate gives Jesus the title King of the Jews. So, Matthew sort of bookends the life and death of Christ with this title, King of the Jews. That wasn't just an accident. It wasn't just simply a recounting of the events. Matthew is telling us uh, something about the nature and purpose of Jesus coming into the world. Another example would be the word Son of God, Lord, Savior of the world, the one who brings peace on earth. Guess who that was supposed to be reserved for? That was supposed to be reserved for Caesar, Caesar Augustus. Luke tells us that these titles belong to Jesus. So, Jesus is the Son of God, Lord, Savior of the world, and the one who brings peace on earth. We'll talk about that kind of peace here in a little bit. So, Jesus is the embodiment of God's will for the earth, not what Caesar wanted. And then I mentioned that I would bring up the Gospel of John, who does not have a birth story, but if there's anything that could sort of substitute for a birth story, it is uh, in John 1, 4 through 5, that, that Jesus is the light of the world. And guess what? that text is supposed to be for the emperor. 
And so even though John doesn't have an official birth story, there's this functional equivalent that the light shines in the darkness. And so light is important to imperial theology for a number of reasons. People in the ancient world didn't have artificial light the way we do now. I mean, we're worried, we're supposedly supposed to be worried about the problem of too much light and not enough nighttime. Well, they had the opposite problem. The opposite problem was that they had to live in darkness at night and they waited for the morning. And so light is an important aspect of imperial theology for, for a number of reasons because Caesar was supposed to be the savior of the world. And not only that, these stories of Caesar, Augustus's birth, Octavian, was assumed that he was to be born of the god Apollo, which is the god of light. When you make these kind of connections, we're not just trying to like, oh, hey, let's just connect all these dots and, and do stuff. These were, these were subversive stories that we miss if we don't understand the context that isn't provided by the writers, because I'm sure they didn't have to provide that sort of context. I think these are really important things to consider as we study through the Christmas story on a regular basis. And really, when we go through any biblical story, it's a, perhaps a meta lesson that we can take with us from here on out on, on a lot of levels. Because if you think about it, we're, we're used to giving histories uh, a bit of context uh, you know, as we, as we read through the source material. If we read through, for instance, some of the original source materials surrounding, say, you know, the American Revolution or something like that, we're used to understanding that there are contextual points that we need to remember as we're reading the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution or the Articles of the Confederation or any of those types of documents and whatnot. But one of the things that we don't often do with the Bible sometimes is remember that those are present too. And so when we get to the Christmas story, when we see these sorts of things, they may seem like extraneous details uh, to us right now. But if we consider that they were not extraneous to the people who were hearing the stories back then, then perhaps it gives it a little more a little more interest interest to us and a little more applicability, a little more just insight into the way that God was trying to work in, the, in, in that day and age. And then, can, and then immediately following that, that helps us to understand how to apply it to us now. Yeah, I think one of the dangers that we face, and this is just a tends to be a, a habit when we read older documents, documents like the, you know, the Constitution at the founding of our country, uh, or even, of course, the Scripture, that we read our own notions of things back into them because we have no, I mean, we kind of don't know any better in, in one sense. I mean, we've learned over the years to know, oh, there's context that I don't understand. Um, and so, I mean, if, and we'll use this example just like you did, Norm, is that, you know, we can't even agree on certain interpretations of the Second Amendment based on the fact that there may or may not be a comma originally in the document. Can, how, this is a really tough thing to get inside the minds of Matthew and Luke and to understand their context. I mean, we're dealing with a different location in the world, a different time in history, and of course, different languages translated into our own. So, you know, I think the, the fact that we don't live in that era obviously doesn't get, or that we're not scholars of that era, give us a little bit of a, um, at a disadvantage, but that doesn't mean that we don't have enough resources to, to go with. And I just want to add here, just as a side note for the record, what we're not saying is that without serious, dedicated time to studying the context of this uh, story is that you can't 
be guided by the Holy Spirit and be influenced by it. Obviously, that uh, is is not true. Uh, we do believe that God's Spirit works through the reading of, of the Scriptures and that you don't have to be a scholar to get the quote-unquote real meaning of Christmas. That's That would be kind of a ridiculous claim. Yeah, but we do want to challenge you to get in-depth and to yeah. deepen your understanding of Scripture and, and these stories. So, one of the things that, you know, we're, we're getting at here is a, this big overarching context of the Christmas story. Here's that big theme we want to get at. The kingdoms of men or the kingdom of Rome versus the kingdom of God. So, where, where do we want to begin with that, Doug? Well, I think we, we can see that that's happening now, too. We talk about this a lot in, in libertarianism, where we think about well, let me just say it this way. We talk about it a lot at Christian libertarianism because we believe that there's a way that God works through the world and that's through nonviolence, and we recognize that the state is inherently violent. So, there's this clash going on, and that clash is uh, perennial. <laughs> it has never it has never gone away. And so, what I think is, I mean, to reference to my point at the very beginning, is that there was a reason why God chose to become incarnate at a certain time in history, and that, that time in history was a time where there was a lot, not just some domination. There's always been domination, but Rome uh, essentially was the empire that had, was, you know, Rome felt was supposed to, you know, end all empires and bring about peace. So, the problem is it was peace through victory and subjugation. It wasn't the kind of vision that God had for the world and through the Jewish prophets and as confirmed through the life and the teachings of Jesus that there was peace through justice. It wasn't, you know, peace through violence or peace through victory doesn't really bring peace. It at best can bring sort of a lull in, you know, maybe maybe there's like this like lull in violence and, and things are sort of, they feel like they're getting better or have gotten better. But there is really no lasting peace without, of course, the gospel and what the gospel brings to our world, not just in the sense that people are saved and redeemed, but that uh, those people who are saved and redeemed are doing the work of Christ, uh, doing justice in the world without doing it through subjugation and violence. Yeah, so in other words, it's not, it's not a sustainable piece because it doesn't really solve humanity's problem, and it certainly doesn't solve it through institutions. Uh, well, or we could say that it's not solving it through the institution of the state. Yeah, certainly. I mean, we're not going to deny that there's governance that needs to happen, but those that governance, as soon as it turns into a state, it becomes basically contrary to the gospel. Right, because once you're enforcing on, at the at the point of a gun, you become you become non-voluntary in how we establish order. They didn't have guns back then. How about the point of a sword? Oh, okay, yeah, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, um, there, was, there was a lot going on there in the first century that, you know, Rome wanted to have monopoly over a military monopoly. They wanted to have economic monopoly. They wanted to have ideological power over the meaning and interpretation of the rulers. And so that's why we alluded to these these terms that were given to Caesar Augustus, divine, son of God, God from God, Lord, Redeemer, Liberator, Savior of the world. You know, it's when, when, when the Libertarian Christian Institute promotes the idea that Jesus is Lord and therefore Caesar is not, we're not just making that up because it sounds clever. That would have been an implied second statement in the first century, and, and it would be treason, treasonous because Octavian, Caesar Augustus, was supposed to be 
divinity incarnate. And yet, we have God coming down to earth and becoming the real savior of the world, the real liberator, the real redeemer, the real prince of peace, the real bringer of peace. And you can imagine that if you were one who, say, had become a Christian, and you've, you believe that Jesus has saved you that it, and is coming again, and all and, and these important things that we, that we kind of, uh, we're, we're, let's just say right now that we're sort of, we sometimes even take for granted, but this is because we grew up in it or something. But these are people who, you know, this was a very new thing to them, and yet they're still living in imperial Rome. So, how then are they going to be promised hope from this uh, from this new way of life that they've been given? Uh, yes, they have hope of eternal life, but and, and that's that's super. It's absolutely important. We would never discount that. But one of the great things uh, about the Christmas story is that it subverts what the what the culture, the surrounding culture, is around is telling them all the time that that their that their uh, their little savior and lord is really Caesar Augustus. Or something to that effect. That that your salvation is found through the through the blessings of imperial Rome and through the through the institution of power uh, that that it brings. And we like to think of Christmas stories as promising hope during the darkest time of the year, and we celebrate that Jesus is light and that just this this cute little baby came into the world and we get all warm fuzzy feelings about that. And that's that's all important. I don't want to discount that at all, of course, um, but. You know, we see that as as hopeful, not just in a personal sense. And I and I, I don't want to discount the personal sense because I know that a lot of people find true joy in understanding how God showed up to earth for them. And and I totally get that. What what goes further than that is that we see the promises to the Jewish people that there would be a redeemer, that there would be a deliverer, as there was Moses, like Moses leading them out of Egypt, that there would be a new king like David that would bring peace and justice that would last, that there would be a new king of the Jews that Matthew tells us about. Those things were things that they were longing for and yearning for and looking for. It wasn't, it was something that they prayed for. It was something Mary celebrated in Luke. And so, Christmas isn't just a prequel to Easter, you know, the the first part of the story so that we can say, oh, yeah, that's right, because Jesus came to die for our sins. Once we sort of understand the full meaning of Christmas, as we, you know, every year, there's, it's time to celebrate the meaning of Christmas, and what does that mean? Every year, we get to grow in in that understanding. We don't, we're not just going to get it all in one year if you will. Um, So, if we can get our minds into the world of that first century, we can see that the hope of the world that comes through a tiny baby that whose title is not just king of the Jews, I mean, this baby is king of the Jews, but that very title is a spit in the face to the Roman imperial theology, the Roman imperial dominating paradigm if you will, that we can find hope that the God that comes to earth isn't just coming to earth to take us to heaven. This God came to earth so that earth could experience the peace that is brought through Christ and through the Messiah. It's the very nature of the incarnation that Jesus came to bring us peace for a better world as opposed to the the threat that, that, that it masquerades as, you know, this 
promise of peace uh, brought by Pharaoh and Caesar uh, that is basically domination and not actual lasting peace. Clearly, God was doing something quite radical when he sends himself to sacrifice himself in order to achieve victory for us over sin and death and to save us from the pit of hell. But there's also something going on throughout the life of Christ where he's doing something in addition that's radical for this world, showing us a better way to live and something that goes against the the ways of the world. Uh, you know, the way of, there, there's even in the book of John says, you know, the, 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 king, the kings or princes of this world want to lord it over you. But I'm going to tell, tell you something different. I'm going to show you something different. That instead of being a domineering person, that it's the servant who really is the one who is, who, who is truly following the way of God and is doing something good. So that's, I think, some, something that we holistically see throughout the, the story of Jesus from birth to death, that uh, we, we, only, we get, begin to see it in the Christmas story. That it's uh, that it's it's coming, it's heralded, and and it's something more is coming as a result. You know, so we could really see the Christmas stories as the entire gospel in miniature, and when we do that, we can see the elements of the Christmas stories that we see throughout the Christmas season, whether we're singing a particular hymn in church or a worship song, uh, especially ones that are based on the actual texts of these scriptures, that we can take hope in those, that we can see how they play out in the broader, in the broader picture. Maybe appreciate it in a slightly different way. Yeah. There's a lot of ways to, to spell this out and to, to talk about, you know, how does this apply and so forth. And I hope that we've come up with just a few ways of basically getting you to think a little bit more about the context of the first century and the context of these stories, the purpose of Matthew, the purpose of Luke in telling these stories. Obviously, there's way more that, that can be said, and there's some resources that we'll put on our show notes page. Norm, do you have anything else to add before we uh, wrap it up? Let me just challenge everybody that as you're reading the stories, as you're telling it to your children, as you're recounting it in, in your church services, just be thinking about, uh, about, about these things in a little deeper way. If, we've, if all we've done to, in, this, uh, in this short segment is to give you just a, a wee bit of perspective uh, as, uh, as you approach the season, then we've done our job and we hope that, uh, that, that, is a, that that's a good thing, that that encourages you, and that, uh, that ultimately you know, you've learned a little bit more about God as a result. And uh, we wish you all a Merry Christmas, of course. Yes, we do. And on behalf of the Libertarian Christian Institute, we want to thank you for joining us, and we hope you have a Merry Christmas. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com. Libertarian Christian Institute.